tonight, looking at the book of Leviticus. And I'm glad there's more than five people here tonight, which if people were looking ahead, this may have been the night that you've been thinking about wanting to miss. If you're going to miss one Wednesday night, this would probably be the night you'd want to look at because typically if we were to take a poll of people, how many people would name Leviticus as their favorite book? I'm sure not many. Yes. Okay. Three liars here tonight. We'll pray for them later. But typically, that's not going to be the answer that you're going to give. In fact, this is where New Year's resolutions of reading through the Bible in a year usually meet their demise. You get through Genesis in January. You get through Exodus maybe in February. You hit March and Leviticus comes on the scene. You're like, oh man, all right. You know what? We'll just kind of put that away. Resolutions to read your Bible sort of meet their demise right here with the book of Leviticus. Yep. What's interesting is the book of Leviticus was the first book that was studied by a Jewish child. And yet it's oftentimes the last book that a Christian is going to go to. Now it's true that there's a lot of stuff here that can bog a person down. But when you begin to realize why it's all there, it becomes very interesting and exciting. Because now remember the book of Exodus where we ended off last Wednesday night, we ended with Moses about to enter the tabernacle. The instructions were given in the book of Exodus to build this tabernacle, this place that God would meet with his people. Moses is about to walk in. It's the last few verses of Exodus. And yet then all of a sudden, he stopped. He wasn't permitted to go in. In fact, the glory of God was filling the tabernacle. And God needed to instruct the people how they were to approach a holy God. Moses wasn't able to go in. The the glory of God just shone around it and Moses wasn't permitted to go in because God saying, you know what? Before you just march in, you need to understand how you're going to approach a holy God. And that's what the book of Leviticus becomes all about. All right? So we're going to play a little quick video for you that's going to give you a quick overview and then we're going to walk through this here together. All right? The book of Leviticus, we know you've been avoiding it because it's weird. So let's fix that. Now remember, the story of the Bible began with humans in God's presence, but they were banished because of their rebellion. However, God wants to be in relationship with us, so he chooses one family that he will use to restore the world back into his presence. And so God's presence comes to dwell in a tent right in the middle of Israel. And that's great. But it creates a problem because it's so intense that Moses can't go in and other priests who enter inappropriately, they die. Well, wait, if God's presence is good, how is it all of a sudden dangerous for people? So think of it this way. God's presence is like the sun. It's pure power and goodness. And when something mortal and corruptible gets close to such pure power, it's destroyed. And so the word holiness is used in Leviticus to describe God's pure and powerful presence, which, like the sun, is both good and dangerous. So the point of Leviticus is to show how corrupt Israelites can live near God's goodness without being destroyed. Now, in the book, there are three ways for how this is all going to work out, and these are going to seem strange to you, but just hang in there with us. The first one is rituals. The second is this idea of the priesthood, and the third is a bunch of purity laws. Now, the book is broken up into seven sections, and each solution is explored in two sections of the book. The rituals are here, the priests are here, and the purity laws go here. 
Now, the first solution, rituals, involves a lot of animal sacrifices. And so Leviticus begins with detailed instructions for how to make these sacrifices. Some are ways of saying thank you to God, and others are simply ways of saying I'm sorry. And here at the end of the book, there are some more rituals. These are about observing sacred days and festivals. They're all celebrations that retell some part of the story of how God rescued Israel and set them apart from the nations. The second solution to the holiness problem has to do with priests. You see, being directly in God's presence is really dangerous. So he appoints priests as special representatives who can go into his presence on behalf of others. So in this section, we have a story about how the priests are ordained into the priesthood. And then this other section explains the set of higher standards that the priests have to live by because they work so closely to God's presence. The third solution in the book is all about purity laws. And this is by far the hardest thing to understand. For example, in this section, we're really concerned with knowing whether you're clean or unclean. Or another way of saying that is being pure and impure. Here's what we need to know to understand this. When you're in a pure state, you can be near God's presence. When you're in an impure state, you can't. And so it was really important for Israelites to know what state they're in at any given moment. So the first thing we have is a list of pure and impure animals. Yeah, this list of animals is divided up by where they live. So on the land, in the sea, in the air. And the text is just not clear about why certain animals are impure or why touching or eating them makes you impure. What is clear, however, is that avoiding these creatures will set Israel apart. And it will remind them that God's own holiness should affect every part of their lives, including what they eat. After the food laws, we get a lot of random rules about things like skin disease, touching dead bodies, what to do with bodily fluids. But they're not random. All of these are things that the Israelites associated with life and death, which are sacred things because God is the author of life. Okay, but simply coming into contact with these things makes you impure? They do, but we have to keep in mind that it's not wrong or sinful to be ritually impure. You just wait a few days, take a bath, offer sacrifice, and you're pure again. What is inappropriate is entering into God's presence when you're in an impure state. Now, there's more purity laws over here in this section. Yeah, these focus on Israel's moral behavior. So these are laws about social justice, healthy relationships, having sexual integrity. Living by these laws will make Israel into a morally pure people who can live near God's presence. Those are the three solutions. Now, you've probably noticed that they surround the very center of this book. And it's here that we find a really important ritual called the Day of Atonement. Yeah, so Israel's a big tribe now, and odds are there's a lot of sin happening that goes unnoticed that people are not dealing with. And so one time a year, the priests would take two goats, and one of those goats is killed, and its blood is carried right into God's presence where it symbolically covers or atones for Israel's sin. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Well, the meaning of the sacrifice, it's explained in the next chapter, where God says that the blood of a creature is its life. And so this goat's life is offered as a substitute. It's receiving God's punishment for Israel's sin so that the people don't have to. That leaves the second goat. Yeah, the priest puts his hands on it, and then he confesses all the sins of Israel. It's like he's placing the sins on the goat. And then that goat gets cast out forever into the wilderness. It's called the scapegoat. Yeah, I've heard that word before. Yeah, it's this very powerful image of how God is graciously removing Israel's sin.
There we go. So we're going we're gonna to finish that in a second. Uh, not in a second. By a second, I mean a lot more than a second. But we'll finish that near the end here um, and just tie it all in. But really, so what we're seeing here is that the book of Leviticus then, uh, as weird as it might seem to us, as, as heavy as it might seem, getting bogged down, it's all really about a God who desires to enjoy fellowship with his people. And he's given us a way by which a holy God might meet with or have his people that are marred by sin be able to be covered and meet with a holy God. So there's detailed directives here meant to point us to the way that we can and need to approach God now. So let's take a look at how this book begins right in chapter one, verse one. And in the first four verses say this. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting. So the again, the tabernacle that Moses built through Exodus there. And he said, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. So that's what this book really comes down to. Again, in Exodus, we saw the deliverance and redemption of the nation of Israel. But now as we go through Leviticus, it's going to focus on the worship and the walk of the nation of God. It has much instruction for the people of God and the priests of God. And so 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 calls us to be, says that we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. So then we know that this book has application and relevance for us. And so the book of Leviticus really boils down to these two elements. And this is what we're really going to focus on here. The way to God is by sacrifice. And so we're going to see that word, just like we saw at the end of verse 4, we're going to see the word atonement being used 51 times in Leviticus and the word offering used 287 times in these 27 chapters alone. So their offering that they're being told to offer up now was to atone for their sin. And that word atonement is the Hebrew word kafar, which just simply means to cover. So it was to cover over their sins. So this is the way to God is through a sacrifice. But then we also see in the book of Leviticus that the walk with God is by sanctification. And so that word holy is going to be mentioned 95 times in the book of Leviticus alone. It is God's desire that people, you know, come to him, but that they also are set apart for him. And that's really what that word holy simply means. It's not some mysterious spiritual term that we're all trying to raise ourselves to. It's just simply meaning you're set apart, set apart to God. So Leviticus 20, verse 26, will say, And you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. This idea of being holy wasn't to be a a binding lifestyle or a burden. It was to be a blessed lifestyle. God's not, not bringing them into this call of holiness to suppress them. He wants them to experience true joy in life. In fact, that word for holiness comes from the same root for which we get our word wholeness. That's what God is talking about here. He says to people, you shall be whole because I am whole. God's complete. He's perfect. There's no blemish in God. He's a beautiful person. He is absolutely what a person ought to be. 
And he's filled with joy and love and peace. And he lives in wholeness. And he looks at us in our brokenness and says to us, you too shall be whole, holy. Sadly, people often think that a holy life is going to keep them from a happy life. But understand something here tonight. It's a holy life that leads to a happy life. Being set apart for the Lord. Living under the the, the commands that he's given us, the instructions he's given us, living according to that, a whole life set apart to the Lord that you're going to really experience the, the whole life, the, the happy life. That's what God has for us here. So all through this book, we're going to see directives given for things like offerings, the priesthood, dietary and sanitary laws, feasts that we're going to look at. All these laws and instructions are meant to keep the people walking in holiness. To be a people that are indeed set apart unto the Lord. So here's just kind of what we're going to be seeing uh, tonight here. Again, the way to God is by sacrifice. We're going to see offerings, priesthood. We're going to see the people. And, and speaking of purification, we're going to look at the altar in chapter 17 and the reconciliation that's given. Then we see the walk with God is by sanctification. We'll look at rules for people, rules for the priests, rules concerning feasts and other various things we'll look at, and then rules concerning them coming into the land of Canaan and how they're to conduct themselves. So that's really the outline that we're going to be kind of following and looking through in this book. But the first section, these first seven chapters are going to be dealing with offerings. And what we're going to notice here in the book of Leviticus is we're going to quickly realize the awfulness of sin. All right? This becomes a very bloody book for us. Like we said, that word offering used 287 times in this book. It's going to become a very bloody book. It's blood is itself going to be mentioned 87 times. And, and it re- makes us realize something here, or it should, that sin is messy. All this is happening because of sin. And sin ultimately brings death. So sin is messy. This is going to be a messy book because it's dealing with, again, this, the issue of sin. And how we, though we are sinful people, how we're able to approach a holy God. We're going to look also in this book at the graciousness of God. The words, it shall be forgiven, is going to be mentioned eight times just in chapters 4 and 5 as we deal with the sin offering and the trespass offering. We're going to look at really the sacrifice of Christ because all these sacrifices are going to point to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Amen for that. So chapters 1 to 7. Deal with the offerings. First of all, chapter 1 is the burnt offering. And this, again, this was a, a voluntary offering. You bring it to the Lord. And it spoke a dedication. It, it expressed devotion and surrender to God. The grain offering was in chapter 2. That's an act of worship to recognize God's provision and goodness to us. That was the only non-bloody offering that they would offer up. So they would have these these breads made grain, fine flour and olive oil, frankincense, baked bread. It was just a, a, a wonderful and a sweet smelling offering to the Lord as I was offered up. Then you had the peace offering in chapter 3. This offering showed our fellowship with God. The, the offer, this is interesting. Oh, I'm, I'm not keeping along here. Okay, the peace offering. Our, our fellowship with God. So what was interesting about this one is that the offer would come with a sacrifice <clears throat> And, and the priest would take it, you know, put it on the altar. The priest would get a portion for himself as he would with a, a lot of the sacrifices as they were serving in the tabernacle. God provided for them through the offerings that came in. So the priest would get his portion. A portion was given to God. They would take the fatty portions, the, the inner portions, and they would 
put that on the, on the altar and it would just be this, again, barbecue smell going up to the Lord. So a portion was given to God and the, and the offer, the worshiper would get a portion for himself. And he'd be able to sit down and just enjoy a part of it. And as though he was sitting down for a meal with the Lord in a sense. And, and enjoying, just again, this fellowship that, that he was having now with God, that God was providing for him. And then in chapter 4, we have the sin offering. And, and this offering is for unintentional sin. It was to bring you know, forgiveness of sin and ceremonial cleansing. And then um, we have the trespass offering. Now that offering seems to overlap somewhat with the sin offering that we see in chapter 4. And chapter 5, if you've got a, a Bible like mine, the beginning of chapter 5 is, is labeled the trespass offering. But it seems like the first number of verses are kind of you know, tying in with the sin offering to some degree. And then not until you get down to chapter 14, it starts to talk about these offerings for restitution, which is what the trespass offering really seemed to be more about. Someone who took something illegally was expected to repay it in full 20, uh, plus 20% of the value and then bring a ram for the trespass offering. So that's what the trespass offering was really all about. Now, these first three offerings were voluntary. The, the burnt offering, the, the grain offering, the peace offering, these were all voluntary. But the last two were required offerings, the sin offering and the trespass offering. All right? The burnt grain, peace, sin, and trespass offerings composed the basic sacrificial system of Israel. These sacrifices were commonly used in conjunction with each other, and they were carried out on both an individual and a corporate basis. The sacrificial system taught the necessity of dealing with sin and at the same time demonstrated that God provided a way for dealing with sin. So yeah, we go through these things and, and, and we're jumping through a, a number of chapters in one go here, one to seven, but as you were to take time and really dive in, you would just see this constant theme, you know, offerings being given, sacrifices being made, animals being slain, blood poured upon the altar. But yet, we look at that and we go, oh, so harsh, so, so awful. But yet, it's God providing for man to be able to come and have access with God and to come and worship God. And again, these offerings all point wonderfully to the work that our Savior, Jesus Christ, would do for us. See, the burnt offering speaks of the dedication and the completion of Jesus' sacrifice. And he gave himself completely holy. The grain offering speaks of the moral perfection and the sweet fragrance of Jesus' perfection. There's no leaven made with the grain offering. No leaven in the, in, the, in the grain, the breads that were brought in that offering in Jesus too. Perfect in his being without sin. The peace offering speaks of the reconciliation of Jesus' sacrifice. We now enjoy fellowship with God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 says, And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. He's reconciled us through his own sacrifice, his blood shed on the cross. The sin offering speaks of the propitiation of Jesus' sacrifice. 1 John 2 Verse 1 and 2 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The trespass offering speaks of the restitution through Jesus' sacrifice. The restitution he made that we couldn't do ourselves. Sin robbed us of life and fellowship. 
But Christ has come along and he's restored all of these things and more. It says in Romans 8, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered up for us all, how shall he not with, or delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now we've been restored. Jesus has made restitution for us. We're restored back into fellowship and we've gained so much more than we could ever imagine through what Jesus has done for us. So chapters one to seven deal with these five offerings that were a big part of the, the, the worship life of, of Israel and, and approaching God, coming before God. Chapters eight to 10 now deal with the priesthood and their mediation now. The priestly line is now ready to be presented before the people. We too are that royal priesthood. This is, we saw in 1 Peter uh, 2.9. Now what does a priest do? Well, well, a priest, he represents the people before God as he goes into the tabernacle and he ministers there. He's representing the people before God, but then he also goes out and he represents God before the people. And that's really what we're called to do as well. But before the presentation now of the priesthood, there needs to be consecration, all right? So here's what we're going to look at in chapters 8 and, and, and all the way through 10. Primarily in chapter 8, we see the stages in this inauguration now of the priesthood. We see in verses 2 to 6 that they were, they were washed, all right? Verses 7 to 9, they're, they're clothed. It's amazing that not just a, a few months ago, in Exodus, there's Aaron doing what? Making a golden calf and telling all the people, this is now going to be the God that's led us out of Egypt making a golden calf and leading the people in the worship of this thing. And yet now here's Aaron being set apart to be the priest. It's amazing. God is showing incredible grace to Aaron in placing him in this position as a priest. He's now clothed. He's now resembling, looking like a priest. Listen, we too, very much like Aaron, we were once in filthy rags but we've been clothed now in christ's righteousness we've been given a new wardrobe in christ just as aaron was here all by god's grace didn't deserve it we didn't deserve it verse 10 and 12 speak of the sanctification the anointing now that the priesthood would receive as oil was poured out on the priest and oil had a, not just you know oil like you'd put in a car oil in this day i mean it had a very sweet fragrance to it it was, it was like refreshing, all right? They've got this oil poured on them now. It was not to be something just copied. It was a specific formula that was used for it. It was unique. And it would now allow you just to smell the priest coming. Or the priest was, you'd be like, what's the old man? It smells like the priest are around here. You would just smell that on them. Now this anointing is, is really, this anointing oil that's poured out on them is really a picture of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit rests on us, it should be giving us a fresh fragrance, really the fragrance of Christ. What this oil would do, this fragrance, it would just overpower the natural, right? The natural odors that you'd pick up in the hot desert sun, right? Working, saving, not having access to showers like we would have them today. You'd have a lot of natural odor going on, but the fragrance now would overpower, right? the natural, just as it should in our lives. Our natural tendencies, our natural, the, the, the fleshly compulsions, as we have the Holy Spirit in us, it should be overriding, overpowering the natural. 
leading us on into living a life that just promotes that sweet fragrance of Christ. 14 to 21, verses 14 to 21, deal with the, the fact that they were now justified through the sacrifice made. They were to identify with an innocent victim now in their place, the priests here, offering up a sacrifice. They were justified through their own sin offering that they offered up. And I'm so glad that we are today justified through Christ. He took our place. We have a substitute for our sin. It's in Jesus that we find forgiveness and and justification. And then in verse 22 to 24, we see them being consecrated. All right? And, and, And this is interesting because here we see that there's blood taken from the sacrifice. And, and there to Moses kills his sacrifice, takes some of the blood. And it says in verse 23, he took some of his blood and put it on the tip of Aaron's right ear. Verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 23. Put it on the tip of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. That's pretty weird stuff, right? But it's very, very interesting because now it's kind of like every part of it is to be consecrated, all right? It's like the priests now, they're, they're set apart to hear the Lord's voice, the right ear. They're set apart to give everything that they do for God's glory, right? The, the right thumb being anointed with that blood and the right toe everywhere that they go, right? Everything that they're, they're, they're walking in is to be that reflection of Jesus. The right side was that side of strength. And so just as the priests are anointed, right ear, right thumb, right big toe, hearing, doing, moving, it's like everything we do, we're to just give our best to the Lord. We're to give from that place of strength, just our best to the Lord. So Aaron and his sons, they begin now just performing their priestly duties in chapter 9. And they're offering up the various offerings that we looked at in the first few chapters. Look at chapter 9, verse 22 to 24. Chapter 9, verse 22 says this. <clears throat> then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. That's an amazing scene going on. Moses and Aaron, they followed through with all that the Lord directed them to do. And he now brings fire down, which consumes the burnt offering. It's God showing that, listen, I'm accepting this. This is good. You followed everything according to what I have said. You know, when we walk in obedience to God, we're going to experience his all-consuming fire in a very joyous way in our lives. Hebrews 12, 29 says that our God is a consuming fire. Now, every person is going to experience this consuming fire. The question is, how do you want to experience it? Because Moses and Aaron, well, and those present with them at this scene, they experienced the fire consuming the offering and thus sparing them, right? God's like, this fire could be directed to you, but I'm going to direct it on this offering that you've offered up. You're accepted because of this offering that you've done according to my word. God's fire came down upon Jesus as Jesus took the judgment of God, the wrath of God, as our substitute, in so doing, sparing us. And we pray today, Lord, let your fire fall and continue to consume us for your glory. Consume us so that we might be yours. But others, 
now may rebel against God, as we're going to see in chapter 10. They too were consumed by God's fire, but in a very unfortunate way. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. And this is important. It says, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. See, here's an account now of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who are rushing into service, apparently with wrong motives. It may have been pride, ambition, jealousy, or just impatience that was motivating them. Whatever it was, here's the problem. It wasn't holy to the Lord. It wasn't done in the right way before the Lord. It was profane fire. Some translations say strange fire. It was profane. It wasn't right, whatever it was. It's believed that maybe they took fire of their own because this was to be fire that came from the altar that God kindled. And it's believed they they took fire from elsewhere, got their own fire going, kindled it themselves. And it's also believed that perhaps maybe they, they rushed into the Holy of Holies. The place that only the high priest was to go into and that only one day of the year, the day of atonement, which we'll get to in Leviticus. So it's perhaps they treaded on ground that they weren't supposed to in a way that they weren't supposed to. And perhaps seeking glory for themselves because the Lord says there in verse three, before all the people, I must be glorified. I must be glorified. So perhaps they're seeking the glory for themselves. They didn't have a reverence for what was holy before the Lord. And they acted in a way for them to be seen. And this is an important account because God is establishing something here in the book of Exodus. Or Leviticus, sorry. He's establishing something for us. That he's a holy God. And we must be holy before him. Set apart. Doing things his way. It's so crucial that as we live for the Lord and serve him. That we don't look to do it our way or for ourselves to get the glory. Jesus is to be honored and receive all the glory for all that we do. If we're looking to get the attention or accolades, it's not going to be fruitful. In fact, it's going to go up in smoke. And you might be a part of that. So here's the instructions given to us. One thing becomes very clear in this book. The worship that God accepts is the worship that God prescribes. The worship that God accepts is the worship that God prescribes. It's to be done his way. So chapters 11 to 16 now move on to deal with the purification of God's people. All right? So God says, I want you to be holy as I'm holy. So here's some things now that you need to put into, into, into practice that you need to begin to set your lives around so that you will be a holy people that will be set apart, distinct, separate unto me. Now there's a number of various laws that are given in order to keep them pure and set apart for the Lord. We first look at the dietary laws in chapter 11. So there's a number of clean and unclean animals that are given in chapter 11. Here's things that you're allowed to eat. Here's things that God says, I don't want you to eat. I don't want you to have anything to do with that. Now, this isn't the Lord being cruel and denying them certain foods, right? Like if you were sitting here thinking, Man, if I had to live under this dietary law, I don't know if I could make it. I don't know if I could turn aside lobster 
or prawns, you know, or some good bacon. I don't think I could do it, right? You might be looking at that. But understand something here in, in this day. This is the Lord not being cruel and denying them something good. This is the Lord desiring to protect them and preserve them from disease and sickness. Because in this day, they didn't have the, the proper means always of preserving things, refrigerating things, keeping things. Things were not dealt with in a, in a certain way to, again, clean these things very well. And so people were getting sick and, and, and getting hit with disease by these foods. The foods that were forbidden were typically those that were common carriers of deadly bacterial or parasitical infection. The unclean sea creatures were typically bottom feeders where natural contaminants were collected. So God says, I don't want you to eat you know, shellfish. It's because in that day, well, they're going to be carrying things that you're probably not going to be cooking them properly and you're going to be getting sick from them. Look at what Leviticus 11 verse 44 says. Turn over there with me. Leviticus 11 verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. This is kind of a little summary now of uh, of that. I am the Lord your God, verse 44. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the animals and the birds, and every living creature that moves in the waters, and of every creature that creeps on the earth, to distinguish between the unclean and the clean, and between the animal that may be eaten, and the animal that may not be eaten. So God wanted his people protected, and living different than the rest of the nations. Not just for his glory, but for their well-being. This is God saying, I want to protect you. And in fact, many other nations, in fact, you just go back to, 1350, this is even well beyond now the nation of Israel and the strong nations, but 1350, the Black Death, the bubonic plague, killed one quarter of Europeans' population. But Jewish communities were largely spared because they followed these hygienic regulations. And sadly, because all of a sudden these people around them are seeing large Jewish communities not getting sick, not getting infected by the same disease that they are, they began to think and accuse them of being the masterminds behind the plague. That's where a lot of people began to look at the Jews as. But they were widely spared from many of these things simply because they followed what God was telling them to do. So God was designed to bless them, protect them, preserve them, not keep them from stuff. Now, I mean, am I glad that we're no longer under the law and these dietary restrictions? Yes, amen, I am. All right? But if I was living in that day with the nation of Israel, I would be very thankful for these laws that would keep me and spare me from much harm. So chapter 12 gives us laws regarding purification now after childbirth. The idea behind this chapter is not about personal holiness, but rather just ritual purification all right we're not to look at a chapter like this and think that pregnancy and the act of uh, of sex is taboo all right this is not god saying oh if you're gonna have a child well man why would you do that now here's the problem you're just gonna have to do this now it's not punishment this is god just purifying them in these things these are both a children pregnancy sex these are all a blessing from god a gift from god but because of childbirth the woman now 
was made ceremonially unclean. Perhaps it was because of just the idea of now, you know, here's a sinner coming into the world, right? Born in sin, born in iniquity, right? Child's coming into the world. And of course, through the process, there would be bleeding, other bodily fluids that would make the woman unclean, all right? Those of you that have been through that, you know, no need to explain any of that. But so God established a time of purification that would allow the woman to rest and recuperate. Think about that, right? Much wisdom involved. This is kind of like God saying, listen, this is kind of like God's maternity leave for these women now. You're going to be ritually impure, but you're also going to have a week now. If it was a man, a boy born, if it was a girl born, it was two weeks. And then, and then add a time after that just for, you know, purification, just letting the body heal and not allowing anybody to, you know, want to come in with their, their gifts and, oh, let me see the little baby. Oh. You know, where again, that day, people unclean and disease getting spread. For This is the time where, where infection is most, you know, likely going to happen. And so now here's God saying, impure, because I'm going to give you time to heal. I'm going to give you time just to get well, to allow that baby not to be around other exposed germs and just to be protected. So very great wisdom in all of this. Chapters 13 and 14, they deal specifically with the disease of leprosy. Now there's a lot of information given about leprosy in the Bible. It's something that we see over and over in the Bible. Jesus coming in and healing lepers. We see a lot of, you know, two chapters in Leviticus given towards leprosy. Now leprosy in the Bible pictures sin. That's why it's kind of an important thing here. Notice how it begins, chapter 13, verse 1 or 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a man has on the skin of his body a swelling, a scab, or a bright spot, and it becomes on the skin of his body like a leprous sore, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priests. So <clears throat> here's the thing. Is that leprosy being a picture of sin Leprosy starting like kind of with a swelling. That's how sin often starts. It's kind of a swelling of the flesh. Pride, right? Uh, a rising of the flesh where we think, mm, I want to kind of puff myself. We get a little bit of a swelled head. We get a little bit prideful. That's oftentimes at the root of sin, pride. And then we see in verse 3 that this leprosy was deeper than the skin. See, so oftentimes we think, it's what I do on an outward level that really matters. And it's the stuff inside that, ah, it's okay. I'm not hurting anybody with that. But like leprosy, it's something that starts beneath the skin. And we have to be aware of that because sin, man, it, it, it's, it's in the flesh. It's, it's inside. And we have to get to the root of the matter. So oftentimes we're thinking, well, I'll just kind of reform this. I'll just kind of clean up my act over here. But we need to get to the root of the problem because it's under the surface that we have to repent of, we have to take before the Lord, ask him to examine, search our hearts, see if there's any wicked way in me. So leprosy is dealt with here in chapter 13. Chapter 14 continues to give the way that a person could be declared clean of leprosy. And here's the great thing, is that though leprosy is a picture of sin, and though leprosy is a very harmful disease, many people died from it. Yet God says there's a way to be cleansed from that. If there's healing that's involved, there's a way to be cleansed and, and, and kind of set free from that label, from that mark here. God provides cleansing for that. Look at verse 
54 of chapter 14. Verse 54 of chapter 14. It says, this is the law for any leprous sore and scale. For the leprosy of a garment and of a house, for a swelling and a scab and a bright spot, to teach when it is unclean and when it is clean. This is the law of leprosy. So like sin, leprosy brought defilement, decay, and and it ultimately left a person in isolation from God, from the community, right? They were required to yell out, you know, leper, right? They, they, They weren't allowed to be around other people. They're oftentimes in isolation outside the camp. That's what sin does, man. Sin's gonna keep you separated from God, from from what he has for us. It defiles, it corrupts, brings decay if we don't deal with it. And God has dealt with sin to the cross through his son, Jesus Christ, being that final offering, that sacrifice for us. Well, chapter 15 deals with areas that may not be seen as obviously as leprosy. Leprosy, eventually, you start to see it, right? But here in chapter 15, these are areas now that aren't always seen and we're dealing with <laughs> bodily discharges, all right? We're dealing with things that are very gross kind of and that we don't want to talk about, but it's there in chapter 15. Here's the deal. Though others may not see it, God sees it and God says, these things are going to make a person unclean, all right? And so he gives instructions for how to be cleansed from bodily discharges. Again, that's just the, the goodness and the graciousness of God. Well, chapter 16 and chapter 17 is really very key chapters in the book of Leviticus. Israel's most important and holiest day was Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. Chapter 16 is all about the Day of Atonement. This is kind of a a culmination now of all of their festivals, their, their feasts. But this is very different because this wasn't a joyous occasion. This was a very solemn occasion, a very reflective one for the people here. This day had a special symbolism. Two goats were taken to bear the people's sins. One was killed as a sin offering. The other was sent off into the desert to bear away the sins of the people. That was known as the scapegoat. We all like to have scapegoats in our life, right? That we kind of pass the buck towards, right? Well, here was the scapegoat. That's where we get the the name scapegoat from. The two goats thus symbolized both propitiation for sins by death and the scapegoat was the complete removal of the sins for which atonement was made. Clearly, the day of atonement was to symbolize for Israel every year the substitutionary atonement God provided for their sins and the total removal of their guilt. This is the day that the high priest now would go into the Holy of Holies. Remember, the tabernacle was divided into two different rooms. The, the holy place, where you had the table of showbread, the, the lampstand, the altar of incense, and then the veil, separating now the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And only the high priest could go in, in that holy of holies, and only one day of the year, the day of uh, atonement, Yom Kippur. And he would take the blood of a bull and a ram, he would take the blood of the goat, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And in so doing, it would make atonement for the holy place, for the tabernacle, for the priest himself, and for the nation. This was the day he was making atonement for the sins of the nation as a whole. Leviticus 16, verse 34. Look at that verse with me here. 
God says, this shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, that was an important day, a great day. It's a very reflective, solemn day, but it was a day where, man, as they see the, one sac- the, the goat being, being sacrificed, the blood sprinkled, and the other goat having the, the high priest lay his hands upon the goat and just kind of like a transferal of the sin, saying, now this goat is the substitute carrying our sins, and they would release it into the wilderness. And the nation would watch that goat just kind of go off up in the hills and run off and realize that's God removing our sin away from us. It's a great day for them. Chapter 17 kind of ties a lot of this stuff up for us. It explains for us why this needs to be such a bloody book. Why this is a bloody book. Why you have to deal with sacrifices and, and animals dying and all these things. Well, look at chapter 17, verse 10. <clears throat> it says in verse 10, And whatever man in the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who eats any blood, I'll set my face against that person who eats blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. You hear that? It's the blood that makes atonement. It's where Hebrews 9.22 would would receive its, its its word from saying, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no taking away of sin. There's no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, because God says the life, it's, it's in the blood. And, and atonement is made through the blood. Blood's important. It contains life. And we need to apply that shed blood if we're going to have life. Right? Now the eating of blood, it says there, that's forbidden. You have to take this and just kind of go ahead and eat it and do something. Now many of you, of course, are quick to say, yeah, that's no problem. I, I, I can handle that command. I'll have no problem not eating blood, right? But you go to you know, the UK and you can get a bowl of blood pudding, right? Or a plate of blood pudding and you know, sausage made with the, the blood and, and cooked. I don't know. I don't think I've ever had it. don't think I want to. But you can have that. Many, many people will eat blood today. And, and in fact, in that day, in this day here that we're looking at, many cultures would eat blood of an animal thinking that if you ate the blood of an animal, you're going to gain some of the attributes of that. Take the blood of a gazelle, swift as a gazelle. Take the blood of an ox, strong as an ox, right? And, and so... You take that blood, you're going to become like that. But it's a very, again, pagan thing to do. And again, God wants people to be distinct, different, and separated from other nations. And so, as we move on, albeit quickly, we're going to look now at the walk with God, which is by sanctification. This is where God is leading us all to in this book here. Say it again. He's wanting us to enjoy fellowship. The way to God is by sacrifice. But now the walk of God, enjoying his presence and fellowship with him, is through sanctification, right? Sanctification is simply being set apart. Again, it's tied in that word holy. Holy means, again, set apart. That's the idea of sanctification. So chapters 18 to 20 
are going to deal with laws concerning our personal conduct. Chapters 21 to 22 deal with laws concerning the conduct of priests, which apparently aren't in the Catholic Bible, but we'll leave that, that separate. So chapter 18 here covers laws against incense, laws just regarding sexual purity, all right? Now, again, God's given us sex. That's not something that we need to kind of like be shy about, but it's something that's to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife, all right? And so God gives some orders about, here's how this is to be practiced, where it's going to be a blessing. Anything outside of that is not ordained of God. And so God calls his people to this sexual purity. That's what chapter 18 outlines. Chapter 19 is kind of a reiteration of the laws already given. It deals with such things as, you know, respecting parents, turning away from idols, leaving the, the corners of your fields unharvested so that, you know, other people can come and glean off of that. That was kind of God's welfare system right there. Deals with chapter 19, deals with, you know, not stealing or lying or hating your brother. Um, deals with not cutting your flesh or tattooing or shaving around the sides of your head. Now, understand, those were, in this day, pagan practices, There's nothing morally wrong with those things. God just wanted distinction for his people, Israel, all right? He wanted people dealing honestly and and justly with one another in chapter 19. So it just deals with a a whole gamut of different moral and ceremonial laws for his people. Now, chapter 20 lays out for us the consequences (laughs) when we go astray from God's laws, when we do certain things that he has forbidden. And in a number of these things, it brought death. The death penalty. That's what sin does. Sin brings death. And sin is simply a a missing of the mark. God says, here's how I want you to live. And sin is anything that's kind of not hitting that target. Going off. Missing the mark. That's what that word sin ultimately means. It's going against God's ways. So God says, here's how I want you to live. And if you refuse to do that, if you do things that are, are very, you know, heavily outside of that well there's going to be consequences for that so here's some consequences of sin that we see in chapter 20 those that worship molech we've talked about molech before again that was where they would sacrifice their children to well then those people shall be killed verse 6 talks about those that get involved with occultic practices they're going to be put to death cursing your parents resulted in death (laughs) boy all right, and again, a lot of kids saying, boy, I'm glad we're not under the law today, right? Because, boy, that'd be bad. So, again, that was just not, you know, some kid freaking out on his parents or having a, a meltdown. This was blatantly kind of calling down a curse upon your parents, right? Um, verse 10 deals with adultery. Again, resulted in death. Homosexuality resulted in death. Polygamy resulted in death. Bestiality is, is mentioned resulting in death. And there's a list of further sexual sins there, verses 17 and 21. Again, that brought consequences with it. So God is clear in laying all these things out. Chapter 20, verse 22 to 26 says this. Let's read that here. Chapter 20, verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them that the land where I am bringing you to dwell may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the statutes of the nation, which I am casting out before you. For they commit all these things, and therefore I abhor them. But I said to you, you shall inherit the land 
And I'll give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean. You shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or by bird or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. And you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. This is what God desires for his people. He says, all the nations out there, the nations that I'm removing from the land I'm giving you, they're doing all these things. So God says, I don't want you doing them. They're being judged for those things. I don't want you doing them because you're my people. And God says, I've got a special plan for you. I want to see you preserved, clean, whole, so that we can, so that God says, I can bring the Messiah through the Savior for this world. God has a plan for them. He wants them to be distinct, separate, set apart, holy unto the Lord. And that's what Leviticus is all about. Now, chapter 21 and 22, this deals with further laws, stipulations for the conduct of the priests, all right? And uh, we're going to skip over that, but lots of stuff there, all regarding the priesthood, things that they're to be doing and not doing. But chapter 23, this is where we get into some very exciting things again, because these are now the feasts of Israel. And through these feasts, the nation of Israel was to acknowledge what God had done for them. And they were also to anticipate what he was still yet to do. Each feast had a past perspective as well as a prophetic perspective. These feasts are a fascinating study. The word feast simply means appointed times. These were appointed times that the nation was to come before the Lord to commemorate what God had done. But these feasts also pointed to a time when Jesus would come and indeed fulfill all these feasts. In fact, the first four feasts here, they're going to point to Jesus' first coming, while the latter three are all looking ahead to the second coming of Christ. Let's see how these all unfold. First of all, verses 4 to 5 of chapter 23 deals with the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They kind of get tied in together. Passover was the time that the nation would reflect on their deliverance out of Egypt, of course. All right? When, when God says, you know, uh, you're to take the blood of a lamb, put it upon the doorpost of your house, and if you do that, then that angel, the death angel, will pass over your house. And it'd be that tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, that would cause Pharaoh to finally say, you guys, Israel, get out of here, go. So this is what the Passover celebrated, God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt. And Jesus came to do that for us. Egypt was a picture of the world. They were under bondage. We too, in this world, are under bondage of, of sin. And Jesus came to deliver us from that, to set us free, to bring us out of sin in this world. So the Passover is fulfilled in the fact that Jesus came to be that for us. And in fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Came to set us free. So pictured in the crucifixion of Jesus, the blood upon the doorpost, perhaps even making the shape of a cross of the blood being there. 
Unleavened bread, again, kind of followed right after Passover. It just kind of flowed right into it. And that's where they were, again, to make their bread without leaven because they weren't to wait for it to rise here to flee out of Egypt. Well, again, the picture for us is now that as we come into Christ, we're to walk in purity. We're, we're set free from sin. We're not to live in sin any longer. We're to cleanse ourselves. And that feast ultimately points to, again, that, that perfect sinless life that Jesus is, where he was able to sacrifice himself on the cross for us and cleanse us because he was sinless. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Then the feast of first fruits. First, uh, feast of first fruits is an exciting one. This was to start when they entered into the promised land. As they began to plant their crops and they would see it grow, they were to dedicate the first ripened stalks of grain now to God. And, and so in doing so, they're, they're giving God the first fruits. And they're doing so in anticipation of even a greater harvest coming in. God, we're going to give you the first. We're not going to wait to see what the rest of the stuff does. We're going to give you the first fruits. And we're going to do it in faith that, God, you're going to bless us with the, the rest. Now, that was to take place on the day after the Passover Sabbath, the beginning of the week. That was the day that Jesus Christ rose again. It says in Matthew 21. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and other Mary came to see the tomb. They realized it was empty. Jesus, you see, has become our first fruits. He came, he died on a cross, our perfect sacrifice, our Passover. But now as the Feast of first fruits recognizes, he becomes our first fruits as he rises again. In fact, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, but now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, but each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming. So Jesus is the only one now that is has risen to newness of life in a new glorified body. He's the first fruits of the resurrection of which we all anticipate an even greater harvest coming in. Feast of Weeks, also known as Pentecost. That's in verses 15 to 22. That was celebrated seven weeks after first fruits was. Pentecost means 50th. That was to take place the day after the seventh Sabbath, which would be 50 days. And it'd be the first day of the week again, which was the Lord's day. Here's what they were to do. They were to come in with two loaves of bread, this time as a wave offering. But this time they were baked with leaven. That's odd. Leaven? Why leaven? Something wonderful happened 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. Just as this comes 50 days after first fruits, 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, Pentecost. Holy Spirit poured out. The church is born. The church made up of Jews and Gentiles. Not perfect. Sinful people. Two loaves of bread. Jews, Gentiles. Made with leaven. Not a perfect bunch. But coming together. God pours out his Holy Spirit. The church is born. Pentecost. The Israelites were to look at this feast as kind of a a thanksgiving of the harvest approaching, a new grain offering to the Lord, but it looked forward to the greater harvest coming through the Spirit, which is the harvest of the church. Now, we've seen these first, you know, three feasts, four feasts with the unleavened bread. Um, and so now there's a four-month break from that feast of a Pentecost until the next one. <clears throat> Interestingly, these four, first four feasts, have all been fulfilled at Christ's first coming. And we're at that gap right now. 
the, the church age. We're all to be a part of the harvest, seeing people added to the church until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, as Romans eleven twenty five says. We should be living for and serving the Lord, waiting for that trumpet sound, which interestingly leads us to the next feast, the Feast of Trumpets. That feast took place on the first day of the seventh month. The blowing of trumpets called the sons of Israel together for this holy convocation. On our prophetic calendar, Jesus fulfilled these first four feasts. We're waiting for him to fill these next three. What are we looking next to on the prophetic calendar? What's the next kind of thing that's going to happen? Blowing of the trumpet. The gathering of God's people. What we call the rapture. First Thessalonians 4 talks about that trumpet sound and God bringing up his people, meeting him in the air. We're waiting for the trumpet call when he's going to, just like they did in that day, gather the sons of Israel for this holy convocation. He's going to gather believers, the church, to meet him in the air at the trumpet sound, the rapture. That's the next thing that we see happening on the prophetic calendar. Well, we move on to the next feast, the Day of Atonement, verses 26 to 32 of chapter 23. That was the key day of, again, retrospection and repentance. We've, we've talked about that in chapter 16 of Leviticus. Whole chapter given to it. But there's a key phrase mentioned here in these verses. It says, as it does in verse 27, the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you shall afflict your souls. You shall afflict your souls. It says that elsewhere in that passage for the day of atonement, afflict your souls. You'll see it repeated. They were, in other words, to grieve over their sin. This wasn't, again, that joyous festival. This was a day of kind of mourning over sin. And there's going to come a time when all Israel will once again be afflicted and grieve over this sin. It'll come when they recognize Jesus to be their Messiah. It tells us in Zechariah chapter 12, Verse 10, listen to this. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. Many believe that this is Jesus coming at a second coming. And the people of Israel will see and recognize this is the one whom they pierced. This is Jesus. There'll be a great mourning or repentance over their sin, just as there was in the Day of Atonement. So we see the rapture come, seven years of tribulation period where God is dealing with his people Israel again, but he provides them opportunity to repent. And Paul talks about this in Romans 9 to 11, where he says in chapter 10 that all Israel will be saved. Many believe it's at this time, as Zechariah records. And then we move into the Feast of Tabernacles. Seventh and final feast, celebrated on the 15th day of the seventh month. And it was a joyous time. People would would gather in Jerusalem and set up these shelters because it was a memorial of how God preserved them, protected them, provided for them in their wilderness journey. When they were just kind of camping out in the wilderness. And so even today, they come together, they celebrate this feast, and they set up little temporary shelters. Camp out under the stars. Kids love it. Go to Jerusalem today during the Feast of Tabernacles. You'll still see these things going on. Now, what's interesting is that it's going to have a prophetic fulfillment 
in the millennial, in the millennium. In fact, it's a feast that's mentioned by name also in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16 and 18, regarding the millennial reign of Christ on earth. Mentioned by name there, Zechariah 14, verse 16 to 18. Why will we keep this feast in the millennium? Why are we keeping any feast at all? Well, perhaps because we're going to be celebrating God's provision, protection, and care for us during our pilgrimage here on earth. And now we celebrate the ingathering of his people into his perfect rest as we enjoy this millennial reign, this reign of peace of Jesus Christ, who is established on his throne physically, literally, here on earth during this thousand-year reign of Christ. This Feast of Tabernacles is also called the Feast of Ingathering. It was similar to our Thanksgiving. It was a time of much joy seeing God's provision and care, remembering all that God has done for them. And so here in the millennial, the ingathering of his people, celebrating how God has been with us and protected us. Well, there's the feasts that we see, the seven feasts. Three of them, they were all required to come to Jerusalem and celebrate the feast of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. But seven feasts all together. And all of them have just an interesting prophetic timeline to them. Well, chapter 24, how are we doing? We've got to move on here. Chapter 24 details the keeping of the tabernacle lamps going and the, and the table of showbread stocked, all right? Jesus, the light of the world, he's the bread of life. And so these things picture Jesus as well. But the priests were to keep all these things. And at the end of chapter 24, we see an interesting situation happening where there's a man born of an Israelite woman and had an Egyptian father. He's kind of part of the mixed multitude that's with Israel and We'll see them kind of causing a lot of troubles. But here he gets in a little bit of a fight with an Israelite brother and he blasphemes the name of the Lord. And so, not good. He ends up getting taken out and getting stoned. Not in the, in the legalized way that's going to be happening in Canada, but, you know, rocks thrown at him, stoned. Like that kind of a thing, right? He's sentenced to death because he blasphemes the name of the Lord. He pays a heavy price for it. But it sets an order, again, the seriousness now of not seeing the Lord as holy. This man just takes very lightly who the Lord is and the very name of the Lord. Takes that name kind of in vain, just breaking the commandments of God. And so God shows the seriousness again of not seeing God as holy. And since he is holy, we are to be holy. Chapters 25 to 26 Details God's desire for the whole nation of Israel to walk in a caring way, one for another, and to honor him by keeping his commands. These chapters lay out how the people were to treat workers, uh, how they were to relieve debt, give farmed land a chance to recover. Very practical stuff here. The Sabbath year was the method God prescribed. You would work for six years, and the seventh year, you would let the land just lie fallow. You wouldn't work the land, trusting that God would allow things to grow and that it would be sufficient for you, right? You would just kind of trust the Lord there. And God promised blessings for their obedience in this. Chapter 26 lays out God's conditional promises in greater detail. Look at chapter 26, verse 3. Chapter 26, verse 3 says this, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Skip down, to, skip down to verse 14 of chapter 26. But, okay, we just heard conditional promise. Do these things 
and I will do this for you. But, verse 14, if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. Listen, obedience is the ground of blessing in the Old Testament. And it still applies today. Now, thankfully, we're living under the new covenant where God has established his unconditional promise to us. It's not based on our ability to perform those things that God says. It's based on Jesus who fulfilled it for us. So we are now made right, blessed through us being in Jesus. And Jesus is the one that has fulfilled all of God's commands and demands. But we understand that there's great blessing that flows out of obedience. Always has been and always will be. God says, hey, here's how I want you to live. Now, we're not under the law, the Levitical law, the law of Moses as we have been seeing. We're not under that law any longer. But there's a lot of great things, moral things, things that are, are, are helpful for us. We don't live by them to be right with God. That's fulfilled in Jesus. But these are things that we say, man, there's blessing that flows as we follow in what God has for us. So we end Leviticus with just a chapter dealing with voluntary vows, chapter 27. Voluntary vows. The whole book really is a book about worship because it's detailing how we come to a holy God. How do we have fellowship with God? How do we approach God? How do we be able to have that audience with God so that we can come and just give our lives in devotion to God? But this wasn't something that should be coerced or manufactured. God wants this to be from the heart. And the heart of true worship is voluntary rather than compulsory. Those who are redeemed by the mercies of God today offer different sacrifices. We offer ourselves. Romans 12.1, right? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So Leviticus teaches us, live set apart, holy unto the Lord. It's reasonable and it's a joy as we get to meet with and enjoy fellowship with a holy God. Amen? All right, let's end that video right now and then we'll pray. But let's be honest, sacrifices in general seem so barbaric. We have to remember that in the ancient world, sacrifices were the main way of buying favor from the gods. But the problem was that those same gods, they're unpredictable, they're fickle, you never know if they're going to ignore you or they're going to turn on you. And so it's in this cultural setting that we see Israel's God as totally different. He does get angry about human corruption, but it is never arbitrary. And he loves people. So he provides this clear way for Israel to know with confidence that they are forgiven and that despite their corruption, they are safe to live near his presence. And so that makes the book of Leviticus actually a revolutionary statement in its day. So that's Leviticus. 
But Israel's still at Mount Sinai in the middle of the wilderness. They need a place to live. Yes, the land God promised to Abraham. And so the journey to that land is what the next book of the Bible is all about. All right. So numbers next Wednesday. We'll get into it. And uh, I love numbers. Boy, there's a lot of fun stuff in a book of numbers. There really is. I love it. I'm looking forward to it. Hope you guys are too. So let's pray and uh, we'll, be, we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for tonight here. Thank you for time just to come together and, and just go through your word and, and to look at a book like Leviticus that I would say oftentimes gets overlooked and yet see, Lord, what your heart is behind it. And your heart is to provide a way that we can be with you, worship you, walk with you. Thank you that you provided a way for us in and through your son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross, shed his blood, and allowed us to be forgiven of sin, cleansed of sin, so we could have relationship with you, God. We today are grateful. We're thankful. We just love you, God, for all that you've done for us. And we just want to live these lives for you. What a blessing it is to live a holy life unto you, set apart unto you. That's where, Lord, we truly are going to experience the happy life. And so may we do that. May we learn from what we've seen here tonight and put these things into practice and help us by your spirit to do so. So we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.